Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Now, imagine this, if you would. You're looking at a picture of a caterpillar next to a picture of a butterfly. Okay, if you didn't know that this fuzzy 12-legged pest actually becomes the multicolored, magnificent flying creature on, on the right, would you make the connection? I mean, would you? You know, I, I don't think you would. I wouldn't. You know, a, a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly? Impossible. But it actually happens, and it's called metamorphosis. Uh, metamorphosis is a Latin word which means you got to be kidding me. <laughs> no, actually, it means complete change. Complete change. And here's how it happens a, uh, a caterpillar hangs upside down from a tree branch and it sheds its skin. Its skin becomes a shell, a cocoon, we call it, in which he lives, that caterpillar lives for the next 10 to 20 days. Now, when I say he lives, uh, actually, it'd be more accurate to say he dies because he actu- actually decomposes to his bare essence. And at that point, a transformation begins. The butterfly begins to take shape until the day when the butterfly pushes out, crack, cracks open the shell, spreads its moist wings and allows them to dry, dry and then flies off. 17,000 different kinds of butterflies in the world today. Metamorphosis. You know, it's an unbelievable transformation that takes place when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Now, today we're going to talk about a different kind of metamorphosis. A metamorphosis that takes place in the life of a person who surrenders their life to Christ. This is a, a metamorphosis that's uh, it's not passive like the caterpillar in the cocoon. This is a little more active because God, though he's doing the work in us, is expecting us to participate with him. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. And as I've been saying the last few weeks, if you don't have a Bible handy, feel free to press pause right now. Get yourself a Bible. Uh, Find the outline. The outline for this sermon will be on our phone app, and then you could follow along. We're going to walk through the third chapter of Paul's epistle, his letter to the Colossians in this new series that we begin today. Now, if you were with us for the five weekends leading up to Easter, uh, you know that we did a series that covered Colossians 1 and 2, a series uh, called Christ Above All. Christ above, we just focused on Jesus getting our hearts ready for Easter weekend. So Christ above all. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's 13 New Testament letters, you know that Paul pretty much divides his letters, uh, many of his letters, I should say, into two parts. Okay, the first part is basic theology. It's uh, doctrinal truths about Christ and uh, about the church and about salvation And then in part two of his letters, he transitions to personal application. Okay, this is how we're supposed to live in light of the basic theology, the doctrinal truths that we learned in part one. Well, Paul follows the same pattern in the epistle of Colossians. In the first two chapters of this letter, part one, as I mentioned a moment ago, Paul tells us some amazing theological truths about Christ. He's the visible image of the invisible God. 
He is the creator of the universe. He's the one who sustains everything he's made by his powerful word. He is the one who is above all unseen powers, all angels and demons. He rules over them. You know, he is the one who has reconciled us to God by his death and by his resurrection. He is the source of all wisdom, all knowledge. On and on Paul goes, Christ above all. Christ above all. Well, today we come to Colossians chapter 3. We're moving into part 2 of this epistle, the practical applications. How should we live if we've surrendered our lives to this Christ who is above all? How should we live? Paul spells out in chapter 3 a dramatic metamorphosis, a transformation that God has designed for our lives. It's going to be even more spectacular than the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. And here's what's going to drive, here's what's going to empower this metamorphosis. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, the Christ who is above all becomes the Christ in us. Christ above all becomes Christ in us, which is why we're calling this series Christ in Us. But please understand, just because Jesus is empowering this transformation doesn't mean that we're expected to be be as as passive, passive as a caterpillar chilling in its cocoon. No. God asks us again to actively participate in this transformation. And so as we look today at Colossians 3 verses 1 to 11, we're going to know three things that Paul tells us we must do in order to be transformed. Three things we must do in order to be transformed. Here's number one. Focus on Jesus. Okay, focus on Jesus. And I'd like to read to you the opening verses of Colossians chapter 3. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is, is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Paul tells us in these verses, when we surrender our lives to Christ, okay, we become united with him in in, in a deeply spiritual way, so much so that Christ's death on the cross becomes our death to an old way of life. And Christ's resurrection from the grave becomes our resurrection to a new life, a life that now extends into eternity. So this is what it means to be united with Christ. This this is what Paul means when he says we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. And then Paul continues in these opening verses and he tells us that Christ is now exalted in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's why Paul says we should set our, our minds and our hearts on Jesus, on things above where Jesus is. So focus on Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't use the word focus, he uses the word set, but he says, set set your mind, set your hearts on Christ. You know, a Bible teacher used an illustration years ago that has always stuck with me. He said, our our minds are like those retractable tape measures. You've all seen this. Uh, You've used one of these. You pull it out to measure, say, a piece of furniture to make sure it's going to fit in the back of your SUV, right? And so you measure it, and when you're done measuring, you push the button and... Snap, it retracts back into its case. 
So our minds are like these retractable tape measures. We, we pull them out during the course of the day to use them for some special project. Maybe it's something you're working on uh, for your job. Maybe it's an online school assignment. Uh, maybe you're just following a recipe for the dinner you're cooking. So your mind's being used, and then w- w- when, when you're done, snap, it goes back into its case. It retracts. So this Bible teacher asks the question, when the button's pushed and your mind retracts, where does it retract to? Does it retract to Jesus? You know, do you love to think about Jesus? When your mind is free to wander, uh, wherever it pleases to go, does it go back to Christ? If we want our minds, if we want our hearts focused on Jesus, if we want our minds and hearts to retract to Christ whenever the button is pushed, then we've got to fill our minds and hearts with Jesus-promoting input. You know, we can't fill our minds and hearts with constant COVID-19 news. We, we can't fill our minds and hearts with constant Netflix shows or Facebook and Instagram or gossipy conversations or on, uh, uh, online shopping and then expect our minds and hearts to stay focused on Christ. Even when we're... Uh, We're practicing a few minimal spiritual disciplines. When we're reading our Bible every day, possibly following the Bible-savvy reading schedule, or we're we're Zooming with our community group, or we're attending an online service on 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 the weekend, live stream. You know, if these Christ-centered activities capture just a, just a small, small fraction of our focus, while hours and hours of our attention are captured by the other stuff I just mentioned, that where do you think our minds, where do you think our hearts are going to constantly retract to? You know, we'll be thinking more about COVID-19 than we will about Christ. Focus on Jesus. Focus focus on Jesus and put limits on those things that distract you from Christ. And practice habits that constantly reset your heart, constantly reset your mind on him. You say like, well, like what? Well, like reading your Bible every day and following a Bible-savvy schedule. You know, like memorizing a a scripture, choosing a verse, maybe something that helps you deal with anxiety or fear and putting it on a three-by-five card and reading it 20 times in the course of a day. Okay, like listening to worship music and singing along with it from your heart, like putting an alarm on your phone so when it goes off at noon, you recite the Lord's Prayer with thousands of the rest of us. Like going to the prayer wall on your app and talking to Jesus about some of these people and their their critical concerns that they've listed. Like picking up a phone and calling a friend and see if you can't work the conversation around to Christ. Like going to bed at night and as you put your head on the pillow talking to Jesus about five things you're thankful for that he did in your life that day. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Now, what do all these practices I've just suggested, what do they have to do with our metamorphosis, our transformation? Well, the more we focus on Jesus, the more we hang out with Jesus, the more we become like Jesus. Now, we know this is a natural tendency, right? The, the people we hang out with, those are the people we become like. You know, th- this is why parents of teenagers, uh, why they're very concerned about who their kids get together with because they know the, the influence. When I was a high school student, I was uh, really involved in music. 
the annual musical production, the talent show, the school choir, and so on. I also sang with a, a small select group of 15 or so students. We did 20 to 30 concerts a year at grade schools and nursing homes and even business conventions. Uh, we thought we were pretty cool. And some of the popular behaviors of the students in that group were you know, smoking and cussing and romantic relationships. It was very soap opera-ish, if you would. Now, not that I did any of these things. Well, not initially, but eventually I did. I became like the people I was hanging out with. Paul's saying, hang out with Jesus. Set your focus on Jesus, and if you do, Jesus will begin to transform your character. Okay, metamorphosis. Focus on Jesus. Here's the second thing Paul tells us to do. Deal ruthlessly with personal sins. Deal ruthlessly with personal sins. Go back to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to pick it up where we left off, verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Now stop right there. If we want our metamorphosis to take us in the direction of greater Christ-likeness, Paul says there are certain attitudes, certain behaviors that we're going to have to eliminate from our lives. Back in the 1500s, the uh, famous artist Michelangelo, he sculpted a statue of David. Now he sculpted it out of this block of marble. And according to historians, two other sculptors had previously dismissed this block of marble as being unsuitable for their work. So how did, how did Michelangelo manage to get this magnificent statue of David from, from a hunk of rock? Well, he was asked that question, and this was his response. He said, I just chiseled away anything that didn't look like David." Okay, I just stripped away anything that, that didn't look like David. So in the process of metamorphosis, it's, it's our job with the help of God's Holy Spirit to remove from our lives anything that doesn't look like Jesus. Now in the verses I just read to you, Paul gives us two lists of these non-Christ-like traits. And these two lists are accompanied by two aggressive actions where Paul tells us how to deal with these non-Christ-like traits. So let's start with the two lists. Bible scholars refer to these as vice lists. Vice lists. Vice lists were, were common not only in the writings of the Apostle Paul, but they're, they're also included in ancient secular writings that taught people how to live a moral life. Okay, here, here's what to stay away from, a vice list. Stay away from these things. So Paul's first vice list begins in the middle of verse 5. It contains five items, and the four, first four have to do with sexual sins. Uh, evidently, the Colossians face the same sexual temptations that we face in our cultural, cu culture today. So take a look with me at this list. First item on the list is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. This is a very uh, general expression here it's kind of a sum of everything else on the list 
And by the way, as you're watching at home, if you've got young children with you, because I'm about to read through this list, you might want to put pause and set them up with a coloring book at the kitchen table, okay? And then you could bring them back in later. But look at the first item on the list. The first item is sexual immorality. And this is every sort of sexual activity outside of marriage, according to the Bible. So God designed sex for a purpose. The purpose is not only to produce babies. The purpose is to create a caring, intimate, lifelong bond between a husband and wife. Okay, it's, it's the superglue that holds a marriage relationship together. It is, it is physical, emotional, spiritual superglue. And God, God doesn't want us super gluing ourselves to a variety, of, uh, a variety of people. This bond is designed to be shared only with a spouse, period. So any sexual union outside of a uh, one-man, one-woman marriage is off-limits. The Bible refers to it as sexual immorality, which by nature of the definition would include everything from sleeping with your girlfriend to a, a same-sex relationship to a marital affair, to virtual sex with some porn image you see on your computer screen, to hooking up with a prostitute. These are all sexual immorality. Second item on Paul's first list, Colossians 3 verse 5, is impurity. Impurity is another way of saying dirty thoughts. Okay, images in our minds that are stirred up by porn or by off-color jokes or by nudity we see in the the cable TV shows we watch or the movies on Netflix we watch or the sex scenes and books that we read. Third item on the list, okay, sexual immorality. And then secondly, impurity. Third item on the list is lust, fantasizing about another person. Okay, imagining what it would be like to see them naked or to jump into bed with them. Lust. Fourth item on the list is evil desires evil desires. We're talking about an unrestrained appetite for the kinds of sex that God says is off limits. One additional thought on evil desires. You know, our culture is so sex crazed that we have managed to convince ourselves that our evil desires are actually our identity. They're part of our our, our identity, who we are. So if I want to sleep with my girlfriend, I just tell myself, well, you know, this is who I am. It's natural. It, w- it would be unnatural not to do this, not to engage in a sexual pleasure. Okay, if I'm experiencing same-sex attractions, I'm saying to myself, well, this is who I am. Yeah, I've got to be true to who I am. But there's a huge difference, friends, between sexual desires and our identity. And if we act on the wrong desires, if we do the things God says are off limits, then we're, we're going to forfeit the identity that God intends for us. We're going to sabotage the metamorphosis, the transformation of becoming Christ-like. Four out of the five items on Paul's first list, and by the way, I'm done with the sex part now, so if you want to bring your kids back in, you could bring them back in. Four out of the first, uh, four out of the five items on this list have to do with the misuse of sex, but item number five on this list is a little bit different. So look with me at the last line of verse five. What's item number five? Okay, it's greed. It's greed, which Paul further defines as idolatry. 
So greed means to constantly want more and more and more stuff. Now, why does Paul call it idolatry? Well, because when we pursue more and more and more stuff, whether it's another vacation or another car, whether it is another pair of jeans or iPad or golf clubs, or we push God off the center stage of our lives. Our stuff becomes our God. You know, our stuff gets our best time and attention and resources. Greed, materialism. It's idolatry. Idolatry. Well, that's Paul's first vice list. Okay, his second vice list begins in the middle of verse 8. So if the, if the first vice list is mostly about sexual immorality, the second vice list is mostly about anger. Now, isn't that interesting? Because anger is another common transgression in our culture today, right? We're, we're angry people. You know, we get angry at our political opponents. Uh, we get angry at over-demanding bosses. We get angry at ex-spouses, at misbehaving kids. We get angry at electronic devices that don't do what we want them to do. We get ang- angry at other drivers on the road. We get ang- angry at the neighbor's dog that barks in the middle of the night. We get angry at Green Bay Packers fans. Just saying, all right? Yeah, we're, we're angry a lot of the time. So take a look with me at this second list in, in verse 8. First item on the list is anger. This is, this is the, the, you know, the heading, if you would, for the rest of the list. Bible scholars say that this word means kind of a settled state of mind. It's a slow burn. It's, a, it's an angry spirit. Next word on the list is the word rage. Okay, this is when anger boils over. It now comes out. Often comes out in, in, in words that we later regret we said, or at least we should regret that we said them. You know, it comes out sometimes even in physical acts. What, what's the next word on the list? Anger, rage, malice. Malice means wishing harm to somebody else, wishing harm. It can even mean planning harm or executing harm. You know, this is when you take your key and you scratch the door or the car, the guy who pulled into the spot just in front of you, right? Or this is when you deliberately leave someone off of your party invitation list and you hope she hears about the fact that you've had a party and she's not been invited. So there, okay, malice, anger, rage, malice, slander. This is bad-mouthing other people that we're angry with. He's saying nasty stuff about them, often behind their back, gossiping. And when we speak to them, it's, it's with retorts and it's with sarcasm. It's with put-downs. After slander, filthy language. You know, filthy language here you know, doesn't mean dirty jokes. Filthy language, the, the, the expression refers to harmful words, violent words, abusive words. Okay, words that are often spelled with four letters, if you would. Isn't it interesting how many of the ways in which we sin come out of our mouths? You know, no wonder James says in James chapter 3, verse 2, he says, you know, if you can control your mouth, you're like a perfect person. So there's one additional item that Paul adds to his second list. 
So just like his first list is mostly about sexual, mora- uh, sexual immorality, and then there's this tag on a stinger, greed. So his second list is mostly about anger, but then there is a tag on, and that is deceit. Deceit is the stinger on this list. Look at the opening line of verse 9. Paul says, do not lie to each other. Bible scholars note that Paul could have just said, well, don't lie. So why did he add don't lie to one another, to each other? I mean, doesn't it seem obvious? You don't, you, you know, you don't lie to your chair, your stool. You don't lie to your laptop. You know, it's almost a redundancy to say do not lie to one another, except for the fact that the Bible scholars point out Paul is trying to emphasize the relational nature of deceit here. See, relationships are built on trust, and trust is built on truthfulness. So if we lie, if, if you lie to your parents about where you're heading when you go out the door, if you lie to a boss about how much work you're getting done at home, if you lie to your wife about some of the porn sites you're visiting online, it, it destroys the relationship. It destroys the relationship. So two lists of vices Vices that we must remove from our lives in order to experience metamorphosis. Okay, the first list is mostly about sexual immorality with greed tagged on. Second list is mostly about anger with deceit tagged on. Sexual immorality, greed, anger, and deceit. Now, I want you to notice how decisively how drastically, how thoroughly, how ruthlessly Paul tells us to deal with these vices in our lives. There are two aggressive actions we're to take when we're tempted by these bad boys. Okay, the first action is described in the opening line of verse 5. Paul says, put to death. And if you've got your own Bible open in front of you, you want to take a marker and circle that and put an exclamation point next to it. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So don't dabble in these vices. Don't, don't, don't play around with them. You know, don't, don't tell yourself that you know, you're, you're, you're going to engage in them just a wee bit. No, Paul says, kill them. Kill them. I used to read a lot of Louis L'Amour westerns. And uh, every story is, you know, basically the same. It ends with the good guy winning and the, you know, the bad guy getting taken out. And when he's taken out, someone from the crowd is bound to say, that man needed killing. That man needed killing. Let me tell you, sexual immorality and greed and anger and deceit, they need killing, Paul says. They need killing. Now, does this, does this approach sound too violent to you? If it does, then consider Jesus' directives in his Sermon on the Mount. Je- Jesus said, if, if your eye causes you to sin, what should you do? Gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, he says, cut it off. Now, Jesus was obviously using hyperbole, using exaggeration here to make a point. But what is his point? His point is that unless these, uh, drast- we take drastic action against sin in our lives, sin is con- going to continue to drag us down. You know, John Owen was a 17th century pastor and theologian, and Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
Okay, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We need to put to death the vices on Paul's list. Now, the, the first of the two aggressive actions that Paul calls for, put to death, the second action is described in the opening line of verse 8. It's not as violent an expression, but it still calls for drastic action. Paul says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Rid yourselves. You know, the, the, the picture here is of taking off old, dirty, smelly clothes. Okay, jump, jump ahead to the opening line of verse 9. He says, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self. Don't lie because you've taken these clothes off, all right? So uh, imagine this, and you've heard me use this analogy before. Imagine that you're working out in the yard all day. Okay, that's about the only thing we can do while we're sheltered at home for exercise, right? Go, go work in your backyard, and by the end of the day, you're covered with uh, grass stains and with mud and with sweat, and there's even a little, a little bit of smell of gasoline on your clothes from when you were trying to fill the mower and you spilled some of the gas. Okay, so after six or seven hours of doing this, you, uh, you go up to your bathroom and you strip off the dirty clothes and you step into the shower and it, oh, it is so relaxing and refreshing and cleansing to have all that washed away. Now you get out of the shower, imagine this, you get out of the shower and you walk over to the, the pile of dirty clothes and you put it back on. You say, that's crazy, I would never do that. Now that's what Paul's saying here. Okay, if you've been washed by Jesus Christ, if you've put your hope and your trust in him, surrendered your life to him, and he's forgiven your sins, why would you go back to old, dirty, smelly behaviors and put them on and parade around in those behaviors? Get rid of them, Paul says. So if you've got a problem with sexual immorality, you know, then stop watching that TV Cable, cable TV show that tempts you. Stay, stay away from the person you tend to flirt with. Put a filter on your iPhone. Take drastic action. You know, if you've got a problem with greed, you know, do something. Re replace your credit card with a debit card. Start giving money to the Lord's work instead of spending it all on yourself. Stop your on, 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 online purchasing. Put a limit on it. And just an aside here. Sue and I were out walking in our neighborhood this past week and we passed our neighbor. It was garbage day and she was putting out her recyclable container and it was overflowing with boxes and she looked at us with some embarrassment and she said, with all this shelter at home, I've been doing a lot of online shopping. So put, put an end to it, Paul would say, if greed has, has got you. If you've got a problem with anger, then go back and humbly apologize to the dude you reamed out. Stop watching so much news. News makes anybody angry. Okay, find yourself a counselor who will help you deal with these issues. And yes, you could find a counselor uh, online. You, you could Zoom with a counselor still these days. If you've got a problem with deceit, stop telling lies. Stop telling even small lies to your boss or your wife or your kids or your friends or your clients. Deal ruthlessly with personal sins. You get it? Got it good. Okay, focus on Jesus. Deal ruthlessly with personal sins. Number three, behave like who you are. Okay, behave like who you are. Back to Colossians 3. Pick it up in verse 9 just after Paul says, do not lie to each other. He continues. He says, 
You've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we become a brand new person on the inside. Paul says we've taken off the old self and we've put on a new self. Now the change he's talking about here, this is a permanent sort of deal. It doesn't fluctuate. He's not talking about our behaviors. He's talking about the self. Used to be an old self, now we're a new self. And this new self doesn't go up and down with our our behaviors. I mean, here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. He says, if anyone is is in Christ... The new creation has come. The the old is gone, the new is here. So Christ followers are new creations. New creations. However, sometimes we still engage in the behaviors of who we used to be. Sometimes we still engage in the behaviors of the old self. Now, this doesn't mean that we are the old self. No, we're the new self. But we're the the new self acting like the old self. So Paul's counsel to us is this. Behave like who you are. Okay, you're, you're a new creation. You're a new person in Christ. Act like it. Act like it. Let me illustrate how this works. Uh, you, you remember Mr. Scrooge? You know, that greedy old dude in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. He was a work of art, wasn't he? He was greedy, didn't care about people. You know, he was mean to his sole employee, Bob Cratchit. Uh, he, he wouldn't give money to any good cause. No, he was dishonest in his business dealings. This is the old Mr. Scrooge, and yet it all changed one night, one Christmas Eve, when he was visited by three spirits, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And they showed him the error of his ways, what kind of a a twisted person he'd become. And I love the scene. My my, my favorite movie version is George C. Scott as Mr. Scrooge. And uh, Mr. Scrooge is sprawled out over his future gravestone. And and, and the ghost of Christmas future is pointing his bony uh, finger at him. And Mr. Scrooge is crying out, no, this is not the man I want to be. I want to be a new man. I I want to change. And he experiences a conversion. He repents of the old self. He does a 180. He becomes a new self. Now, Now, what happens after that? Well, the next morning he wakes up and it's Christmas Day. And now the, the new Mr. Scrooge wants to start behaving like a new guy. And so he sends a, a turkey to Bob Cratchit and his family with which to celebrate. And he makes a huge donation to the poor and he goes and visits his nephew, Fred, who he's been estranged with and they reconcile the relationship. Now, here's the point I want to make. Okay, did Mr. Scrooge do all these behaviors in order to become a new man? No. Mr. Scrooge first became a new man and then all of these new behaviors flowed out of who he was. You see where I'm going with this. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, we become brand new people. And now the behaviors that flow out of us are new behaviors. We we, we start behaving like who we are. How can we encourage these new behaviors? Go back to the middle of verse 10. 
Paul says we got to constantly be renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator. So who is the creator of this new person we've become? It's Jesus. Paul says, okay, how do you get new behaviors to flow out of this new person you've, you've become? You're constantly renewing yourself in knowledge of Jesus. You're spending time with Jesus. You're in Jesus' word. You're spending time in prayer. This sermon is going around full circle. We're coming back to our first point. Focus on Jesus. And as we focus on Jesus, you know, the new person we've become in Christ begins to produce new behaviors. Let me conclude today with another scripture that Paul wrote. This is 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 and it kind of sums up what we've covered today. Paul says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Okay, so we Christ followers, as we focus on Jesus, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord. That's metamorphosis. And isn't that what you want? That's what I want for me. Would you pray with me? While we bow our heads in prayer, let me first say, if you've never become a new person in Christ, if you've never surrendered to Jesus, you could do that right now. You could just tell him, oh, Lord Jesus, I am sorry for my sins and I thank you for dying on the cross to take their penalty. And I understand since you were raised from the dead, you can offer me a new life. And that's what I want. Call out to Christ right now from your heart. I want to become a new person. I want to begin the metamorphosis process. And if you're a Christ follower, let me ask you the question, are you, are you focused on Jesus? If not, can we pray right now? Jesus, help us, even while we're sheltered at home, even when we're in the midst of a crisis like we currently are, help us to put more and more of our focus on you, getting to know you, bringing you to heart and mind countless times throughout the course of a day. And then as we're renewed in our knowledge of you, May good behaviors, Christ-honoring behaviors flow out of this new person we've become. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.